All right, folks, welcome back. This is Miss Radio Podcast coming to you live, uh, where we're going to be discussing affordable housing and homelessness with regards to uh, discussions um, from an academic perspective. And here today we have Professor Murphy. Professor Murphy directs high quality inquiries and develops research and professional skills of those working around him. He is the director of the Meta Lab here at Miss and brings over 20 years of field research and analytic experience into the lab. In 2015, Professor Murphy received the Leslie Eleison Award for Excellence in Teaching and is currently involved with working with folks at MISS and MPS here in Monterey. We're lucky to have him here with us and I look forward to hearing his thoughts on affordable housing and homelessness. So first off, welcome and uh, how's your day going? I, uh, I see from the questions you anticipate it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's good to hear. Um, as a professor here at NIST, you're addressing meaningful issues both on and off campus via research and analytics. As a professor, what's it like to see that analysis come to life in both students' eyes when they have that aha moment during the process of understanding their data research? Uh, you know, the the reason I get into this is because it gives me the chance to uh, show other people how to look into stuff that's uh, going to be in a meaningful way, that they're going to be able to make some sense of, and it's really nice to see when people begin to realize what it really is to go and collect data and uh, the kind of annoyances and difficulties and just slog that you have to go through to get real information that you can make some sense of. And so um, it... It's generally really rewarding when they get to the point that they can start analyzing it and making sense of it, because at that point they own it. This is something that's part of them. And so uh, for me, that's the big reward, is getting people to invest in something to the point that they take it further than I would have had them take it. Hmm. That's good, yeah. So going off of that, um, how does one convey credibility once the study is done? Um, I'm currently taking your intro course, but one of the audience members to know if you've mentioned data analysis is like telling a story. So how could you elaborate on how uh, statistics tells a story? Okay, well, statistics tells part of a story. Hmm. And so you'll use it as just one element of the story. It's basically going to be giving you that credibility, that added um, generalization. And you know, it, they're very, very specific as to what they can and cannot do. And so uh, when you're using statistics, what you're really trying to do is uh, get an idea of what in general is going on in a population. And it's not going to give you specifics about any one person. It's not going to give you a, a perfect prediction. What it's going to give you is a general characterization of how people act under certain circumstances when doing certain things. So that's the part of the story that uh, you'll use. You'll basically bolster your part of the story with that. And uh, you tell the rest given the background knowledge you have and the work you've done to actually get the rest of the story. Mm. So drawing from that narrative of statistics, um, how do you use your findings in public policy arenas as useful tools? That's, um, that, that's not as easy an answer as you might think. Uh, a lot of times policymakers don't really care what the policy, what, what the uh, data say. They don't really care what research has been done. When they care, is when research has been done repeatedly and people start taking it for granted that this is how things work. And then and only then do they start developing a gut 
you know, people say, yeah, they like to they like to go by their gut. Well, their gut is actually informed by all the stuff we've done in the past. So they're not going to go and pick up one policy paper and say, oh yeah, this is that, this is it, this is it. You know, they they really nailed it. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to look at the the established knowledge in the field. And you can put quotes around knowledge because uh, honestly, that's also something that's um, not always uh, you know well defined, and it's it can be challenged at any time. But you know, once we've seen something consistently, once we hear about something over and over again, then it starts entering kind of the knowledge and common currency, and that's when policymakers use it. So you have to get used to frustration if you're trying to produce this stuff from moment to moment or day to day or project to project, because you can't count on them using the knowledge you create. What you can count on is that it's going to accrete along with a lot of other studies until finally people start acting on it. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> that's good, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, because I've 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 worked in public policy before on a legislative basis, and mm-hmm. uh, when I was in Texas, and it it, it takes convincing, you know, uh, especially on a lobbying perspective. You know, folks coming in and out of the office, and they come in with their one page of information, mm-hmm. and you take a look at it, and it's, is this going to stick? Most of the time. You know, we find it non-agreeable based on how our constituents feel back at home and whether or not it's agreeable with them, uh, just because, you know, the nature of politics, you know. Um, so going with that, it it does take, like, multiple efforts and uh, a considerable amount of information for them to go by their gut. Oh, yeah. Those, those one-page policy memos, those are created in boiler rooms where you have a lot of people taking the information and they're trying to tailor it directly to the constituency that they're trying to lobby. Right. And so those are really carefully written and in one page. Right. Large print, bolded <laughs> words, <laughs> yeah. really easy to read, and that's what policy, that, that's what really makes policy. Mm. Very good. So quickly, let's, let's dive into, in your own words, um, as we jump into it, um, what is homelessness in your own words and how does this uh, seem fit um, within what you've discussed uh, within uh, an academic community that you've been part of and uh, how would you define the parameters and the framework uh, definition of what constitutes homelessness? You know, I I can't really pull it from academics. I don't have uh, formal academic studies on this, but instead what I can do is I can give you what I get. Uh, from the people we've been working with, and in particular we work with groups like Gathering for Women uh, that are working with a specific homeless group. And um, what we find is that the way that people prefer to approach this is looking at this as housing insecure. Mm. So homelessness could be that uh, somebody actually is in an apartment right now, but they know they could lose it any time, and they've lost it maybe several times in a row or uh, perhaps they're living out of their car or a van or you know something that might seem like shelter but really doesn't doesn't fit the bill for shelter because it doesn't have the consistency, it doesn't have the security, it doesn't have a lot of the things we take for granted when we've got something that's more housing secure. And so that's that's the way I look at homelessness. We have to look at where people do not feel secure with the home they have and that could be again somebody's garage, somebody else's living room, couch surfing is housing insecure. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, these all fall into homelessness. Right, whether or not that that housing is is sustainable. Um, I know I was talking to a friend of mine who is working on a project program deal in uh, the local school district here, and she was saying how, I forget the figure, but she was saying that, you know, we're dealing with students who are 
considered homeless by definition. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't see students on the side of the street. You know, what does that look like? And they may be living with, you know, multiple family members, aunts and uncles. Um, and that's, you know, uh, by definition, it's not sustainable. It's insecure, as mm-hmm. you say. So it's, uh, it's important to make that distinction and to create that framework for, for our listeners. Yeah, and it, it's also important when, when you're talking to somebody who is in this position Right. that uh, you don't just jump to the word homelessness or you don't just dump, jump to experiencing homelessness. You, you, really just, you really just have to treat them like the person they are and mm. <laughs> just get an idea of what they need and what they want yeah. and uh, let them identify themselves the way they want. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah, that's good to understand that. Um, so let's see. Can you tell us when was it the first time that it occurred to you that there was a particular uh, homelessness type situation here in Monterey? You know, uh, we see a little bit of the homeless problem here. And uh, I, I have to say a lot of the ones, a lot of the people that we see here uh, are gonna be people who are passing through. And uh, these are you know, the, more the, the transient homeless population, the ones who are here on a transitory basis. So they're, they're just here temporarily. And so for a while, it just looked like that's who we were getting, you know, the trust of our ends and the people passing on. But uh, when you look deeper, when you go into some of these places uh, where people are actually staying, uh, then you start seeing where people have a semi-permanent, uh, they, they put it together some kind of semi-permanent accommodation, not a home, not really much of a shelter, but it's still an accommodation is where they stay. Where you really, really see it is once you leave town you go up towards Oakland or Alameda or County or um, God forbid uh, San Francisco you know it's really really bad or uh, actually Silicon Valley where you see people sleeping in BMWs Mercedes uh, box trucks you know they can actually afford a lot more but still not a house right so that's where I really got the shock is uh, up in that area there's large encampments if they take the camp the encampment away there'll be another encampment there next week and it's, there's just nothing they can do about it. There's way too many people who are, who are being pushed out of their homes or losing their homes or for some reason, housing insecure. Mm. So do you ever find yourself interacting with someone who has been a part of this uh, situation in their lives? And what was that interaction like? Well, we're, we're actually doing research uh, to try and find the number of homeless women in Monterey County and you know what they're having to deal with and so I, I have gotten an opportunity to, to speak with at least one and um, of course the people the, the ladies I'm working with to collect these data uh, have met many many more people so they could tell you much more but um, I, I've also spoken with homeless who are uh, yeah, just just asking for money as you pass and sometimes I may not give them money but I may sit and talk to them for a bit and it is interesting. You know, you can find that some of them are very comfortable with where they are right now. And they'll justify it as, you know, I live outside. But I take care of myself. I'm able to handle this stuff. Um, you know, it's not so bad. Other people, you can tell that there's, there's other things that are causing, or not causing, but, you know, definitely exacerbating the situation. These are people who may not... Uh, be making a lot of rational statements. These are people who may be telling you about how things are difficult in a way that makes it apparent that a lot of their their bad luck 
might have to do with some kind of deeper problems that they're going through. And so it, that's where it gets really tough. You can't really fix somebody. You might just be able to help them out, you know, maybe in the long run. Right. right. And, and that pre presents an interesting situation when you start to think about it with your interactions, you know, with folks and whether or not um, you're going to gauge, you know, what kind of response that they're going to give you as far as you know, like the, the 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 former interactions with folks, where you have uh, people telling you that you know, this is this is their living space and they're doing just fine, you know, and they have their accommodations how they seem fit and it seems comfortable for them, you know. Um, I've met folks who you know on on the the trail. Um, mm -hmm. Get the name of it, but it's it goes along you know Pacific Grove and up Light to path. Path. right, yeah, and um, you know they're just kind of passing through, and you know they've got all their luggage. There's a Starbucks down the street, and that guy he gets his coffee every morning. And <laughs> he's a regular, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and he's he he, he seems very um, comfortable, you know, in the position that he's in, and you know what he has established for himself. So depending on you know, the mindset of the individual, whether or not they see it as a comfortable living situation or, you know, and, and coming from outside that perspective, um, I think, you know, the the engagement that you want to, like, at least in my mind, I'm just like, how can I help you? You know, how can I uplift you from the situation that you're in? But that's not always the case, right? No, no. You know, people's... Uh people's reality grows or sh is shaped by what they see every day and so the people that you talk to they take it for granted this is the way life is at that point a lot of times unless they're just newly homeless which at which point they're still shocked but a lot of these people they, this is how they live their day and so when you talk to them they might be having a good day they might be having a bad day and so um, that's going to dictate you know the way they come off to you but certainly a lot of them they they have a rhythm to their life and they have expectations and those expectations you know, are going to be very different from ours and they don't see necessarily granted a lot of them would love to have a lot more stability they would love to have more comfort but they don't necessarily see comfort the way we do I've heard uh, stories about people who they were able to get housing for and um, they just didn't know what to do with it because it was so alien to what they'd grown used to Hmm. And so you know, there, there's, you know, there's no one size fits all. Right, right. So, how do you feel as a member of the community here at Miss and the community at large, uh, as far as what kind of possible uh, influence or how could you impart any considerable action towards creating change within the community in this scope? Um, I I don't know that. The community is necessarily going to be able to solve the housing crisis. I don't think builders can necessarily solve the housing crisis that's leading to this, but I think it is the housing crisis. And it's really, uh, I think, market driven. Uh, we've got an amazing amount of capital flowing into people's pockets up in Silicon Valley. And so they can afford a lot. And so landlords can afford to ask a lot. And then that spills over down here as Silicon Valley people come down here and snap up houses that look really cheap to them. And so it inflates everything. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot we can do, uh, you know, to to add cheap homes, to uh, to do anything for, well, you know, to to fix the the entire problem. 
Hmm. I, I know that they, uh, in Marina, you can see that they're building uh, what are called affordable housing. And that's, you know, $450,000. Actually, no, they, they don't make them that cheap anymore. Uh, about $500,000 homes. And what ends up happening is 70% of them go to people from Silicon Valley. And wow. not to demonize Silicon Valley, but, you know, the money ends up determining what the price really will be. The value, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, market forces being what they are, I don't think there's a lot we can do until we see another correction. A and correction to the market, you'd say? A correction to the market, and it does seem like uh, there's some instability going on around tech. What sort of market corrections uh, could you draw from uh, in the past, or is it something in which we have to start creatively thinking about this uh, in new ways? Well, you know, the market correction I can draw from is when we had the tech bubble burst in, uh, well, actually just about a decade ago. And uh, actually things came down to not affordable, right. but almost affordable levels. <laughs> and, um, and I actually was here, I, I was just recently here at that point, and so um, I saw the prices, I still couldn't afford them, but I saw these prices and thought, oh, that's great, maybe they'll go down a bit more. No, <laughs> they went the other direction. But um, I, I think what's going to happen is if, if we do get another stock crash or another um, tech crash, then what's going to happen is we'll start seeing some disbursement of uh, tech. Oh, and not that Silicon Valley will necessarily die, but I think that we're going to have a lot of other candidates for you know, locations where people can go that can be more affordable. Mm -hmm. And that could take some of the burden off this area. But. That sounds good. Okay. Um, so. I know you had touched about it uh, earlier, uh, but could you tell us a little bit more of the kind of studies you were talking about, the study that you've done with Gathering for Women? Yeah, um, we're, we're doing it now. Right, yeah. So um, provided this thing, uh, we, we still work on funding from, from period to period, but uh, the first section is already done, and basically what we did was we took, um, well, well, we got as many interviews and, and uh, surveys with local, Monterey local, homeless women. Uh, the purpose for this is uh, to, to actually enumerate a group within the homeless community that is simply not counted. And it sounds odd, but uh, when they do the homeless surveys, excuse me, the homeless census, they will pay attention to families, they'll pay attention to individual males, because they really need to know how many unaccompanied males there are, because that could be a potential problem they don't consider unaccompanied females to be a problem. And so because of that, they don't get counted directly. I mean, you can't just subtract them from the number of families or anything like that. So uh, because of that, groups that work with homeless women need to get some numbers in order to be able to write grants, to be able to serve this community. And so our job is to go out there and get estimates on the size of the population and what their needs are. So they can write grants that will reflect the uh, dire need for this sort of thing, or the magnitude of the problem, and we'll also be able to give good estimates as to what these people want and need and what got them there. And so um, these are all things that they wanted us to gather. We've gotten that for just one small place, and that's Monterey. So now we've got to spread into Seaside, Marina, uh, Carmel, Pacific Grove, etc., in order to be able to get as many people from the population as we can. and that's the more difficult problem because we really need gatekeepers to be able to help us find people where they are and to do it in a way that they'll trust us 
and it realized it would not there to take advantage. And so that's been that's been where we are now. We're in the planning stages to uh, start working with some other homeless providers. Um, excuse me, some other providers to the people in the homeless community and uh, really start trying to find those gatekeepers and cultivating relationships that are going to help us to find more people that we can talk to. So, okay, that, that sounds, um, sounds like a really positive endeavor, but also challenging at the same time. The, the more broader scope you go into, you know, um, new, new communities, new, new cities, um, is Salinas is also is that encompassing what gathering for women is? That's that would be stage two. This first year we're trying to see if we can do it with Monterey, really the Monterey Crescent. Right. And if we can do that, then we'll move into Salinas and the rest of Monterey County. Right. So what kind of connections have you found so far that have been successful with building uh, community partnerships um, in these new? Uh, you, you say like second stage, the first one was this local area, and now you're embarking yeah. on the, the crescents. Well, so um, the funding hasn't come through for us to begin the, the next stage. Uh, what we do is we call around, and uh, when we get an invitation, we'll go and talk. Uh, well, well, we'll try and get the, the information from them, so how many people they serve, and what capacity, what kind of things they provide, um, you know, that type of information so that, that we'll then be able to start using that to try and come up with estimates uh, but so far these people are overwhelmed and so when we do contact them they either don't have time to talk to us or they end up um, putting us off for mm -hmm. some other reason and so we're going to have to try and be a, a little bit more accommodating or perhaps more aggressive in trying to get you know the information we need in order to hopefully help these people as well so uh, I guess if we have one success story it's just giving these groups the opportunity to partner in what we're doing. And once they have ownership, they tend to be very accommodating and very helpful. Hmm. That sounds good. So, so far so good. Um, where do you see statistics and data analytics playing a role here in creating public policy that is effective towards solution-based policies that help folks here in the Monterey area? Well, when you do something like this, the report that you put out is typically not very sophisticated in terms of statistics. What we'll do, we'll give the mean, we'll give the you know, average response, so this will tell you a little bit about what the community is like, and we get standard deviation, which is just to tell you how varied the answers are that we got. Um, we're not going to do any kind of, uh, well, we, we typically don't do a whole lot of statistical modeling only because the client doesn't always understand it and unless they really have a reason to ask that question it's not going to necessarily help so we, we tend to just give a summary and give people the opportunity to download and use the data that, uh, that they need under certain circumstances so we're not going to just give away the data set but we will help people to use the data set hmm. okay so Looking more so on affordable housing um, in a local area, what kind of potential public policy actions and approaches do you see that are worth implementing or considering as we approach a new election cycle, if any, uh, given that we <laughs> talked about market corrections earlier? Well, it, I, I went with uh, Dimple Rathod. Uh, we went to um, Salinas when they were talking about building a couple homeless shelters. and. It does seem like a great idea, but you really need the funding behind it. And California does actually pony up some, a lot of money, actually, to get some of these things built. 
the problem's going to be the not in my backyard factor. So as people nimby up, <laughs> they really don't want to see the homeless shelters because they suspect that it's going to be the drug users or the, um, the people who have uh, mental health issues that are going to be in there. And that means to them that these people are going to be in their neighborhoods more often. So what really needs to happen is putting uh, is for people to put more of a common face on what homelessness looks like these days. People need to get an idea that these are families. These are uh, people with jobs. These are people um, who don't look like what you would have as a stereotypical homeless person. And uh, it, the more we can do that, I think the more we'll be able to get acceptance for having you know, some of these uh, temporary housing options that will help people to at least have an option to, to begin getting better jobs, to begin uh, stabilizing their lives, and then maybe get a more stable housing situation. You mentioned that, and the first thing that came to mind was I had gone to San Francisco, and I was in the middle of the city, and I saw a billboard, and it was advertising a man um, who had just had, like, a, a heart attack. And it was basically saying, this is someone who looks like, um, who, who has heart issues, you know, and like to like prevent yourself, call this number, um, you know, to do a, a checkup on yourself and to prevent from that happening to you. Um, because it looked like any or average looking uh, older man. And um, to me, I think that was striking because it kind of painted a picture, it was a visual representation uh, of of what this looks like, you know, on the face. Um, and to be able to, like, translate that for folks uh, is huge, you know, so they understand what this actually looks like, who are we, uh, you know, giving this affordable housing to. Um, it's just, you know, uh, to dispel the fear, to dispel the worry of, you know, the not my oh, backyard. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of people don't realize it. They don't really think about it, but most people are one catastrophic illness away from joining the homeless community hmm. because uh, insurance doesn't cover a lot of things and if you happen to hit on those things then you can find yourself in the debt in debts that are you know tens hundreds of thousands and that can quickly you know destroy somebody's livelihood hmm. so lastly I want to touch on uh, wicked problems mm -hmm. and has we approach uh, this topic of homelessness, homelessness could be considered a wicked problem. So first, what is a wicked problem in your own words, and what would be the necessary steps towards creating significantly reduced effects on homelessness, given the certain stakeholders and geographic area that we're located in? All right. Um, <laughs> this is, this might take a lot longer. And, yeah, um, I, I'm going to take kind of a, a superficial... Uh, approach to wicked problems, but wicked problems actually have about ten uh, different characteristics. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, <laughs> some of the uh, ideas behind wicked problems are these are typically not just a problem, it's a set of problems that manifest as one big symptom. And in this case, the symptom is going to be homelessness. But uh, there's a lot of things that could be feeding into the homeless population, and these things might have to do with other factors, and these factors interact. And uh, they typically aren't something that you can fix with one policy or one set of policies or uh, even just one big batch of money. Uh, the problem with wicked problems is something we've already discussed, is that um, depending on who you are, your definition 
of what you're looking at could be very different. So um, when we look at people considering a homeless shelter nearby, then they don't want it if it's close to them because they're deciding what it is uh, that's coming in. And so uh, it's not going to match what uh, the people who are actually homeless are often thinking or what the policymakers who are trying to fix this problem are thinking or what some of the builders are trying to uh, consider. So competing definitions of the problem change the nature of the problem, change the way we can look at the problem, change the way we can approach the problem. Typically these things don't stay solved. So even if we're able to address parts of uh, a wicked problem or this particular wicked problem, it's going to migrate into some other area. So sometimes solving one aspect of the problem exacerbates other aspects of the problem. And I could certainly see that happening in this case. Um, so as far as how I would approach this, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I've already thrown up my hands once and said we need a market correction, but we certainly don't want that because those are painful. Um, I I can only imagine that uh, gradual shift away from uh, the the cost, the current high cost of housing, will eventually mitigate this. But that also means we need a lot more blue collar jobs that are going to be able to sustain people in housing. We need a lot of. Um, less skilled, uh, way, ways to keep our less skilled workers close to where they need to be working, but, uh, but you know, that's right now not possible with the amount of the people are paid. So um, I, I really don't know. Uh, temporary situations with vouchers com combined with uh, raising the minimum wage, combined with uh, bringing in new industry, combined with, you know, uh, hopefully a host of uh, different groups trying a host of different things, hopefully we'll be able to see some shifts that start to reduce instead of increase the number of homelessness that we're seeing. Mm. Excuse me, the number of homelessness. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, the number of people who are experiencing homelessness at the moment. Right. And it's fascinating, you know, we started this discussion about, uh, you know, affordable housing and homelessness, and we're talking about public policy and the narrative of statistics. And just sort of wrap it up, um, you know, sometimes I think we get caught up in what public policy is trying to do, which is, you know, shift the culture, shift, you know, the minds of so many individuals to, like, start thinking about uh, the problem, everyday problems that we uh, go through um, and how we think about them on an individual basis. How much do you see it posited as... Um, Possibly, you know, maybe not a public policy issue, but a one in which, you know, um, you know, we occupy a space of more uh, like of a cultural shift of the way we look at each other, uh, of like having compassion for other people, you know, and uh, how does that look like, you know, um, just on the trail, you know, you can you can find someone of a completely different socioeconomic status next to someone who would be deemed as you know, part of the homeless population, and they both coexist on this trail, you know, and one is not interacting with the other. Um, I think that's really fascinating. It is interesting. Yeah, when you think about policy, this is uh, anything that government chooses to do, it chooses not to do. Not necessarily individuals or people or business or, you know, so it's not necessarily, that policy is not necessarily built to change culture, although it is built to influence the way people behave. So, yeah, it, it is the ultimate sociopath. It's, it's it's there to make sure we can get people to change their behaviors or maybe reinforce positive <coughs> behaviors. Um, 
culturally, uh, I could certainly see uh, a shift in culture, especially as we get more people who are homeless and we have more people in our family who might be experiencing homelessness, or we have more people we know who become homeless. It changes the idea of what homeless is. And as, as these things change, I can imagine that uh, attitudes and culture around it is going to change. But uh, that's certainly not a best case scenario. That just means that it has to go crazy before people start getting better about it. But then what does better really mean? Okay. So, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, um, something might arise in the business community where they start having housing built for a business. And that means that some part of, some part of somebody's check might actually be extracted before they get it just to fit in fit them into company housing mm. i don't think that that's something that the u.s really does that much anymore but you know it's just kind of a an oddball scenario we can use to have as a metaphor to to see you know where things might go maybe in some other aspect right i i had spoken to um several weeks ago uh, city council candidate maddox habedesher mm -hmm. And he had said something that was a little bit oddball uh, as far as uh, like the way to think about affordable housing. I'm and uh, so sure he could come up with some oddballs. <laughs> <laughs> he mentioned that you know when it comes to affordable housing, uh, to think of it as a, like maybe a, as a competition potentially. You know, as like how many how many people did you house in your community today? Um, and I said, okay, you know that's that's reasonable. But um, how does that look like? You know. So as far as, you know, positing, you know, policies that would adhere to that kind of, uh, you know, idea. Because um, ideas are fuzzy, you know, as we discussed earlier. And to conceptualize and create, um, you know, ways in which to make ideas possible, it's a long road. Yeah, it certainly is. And then you also think, how do people game this in the future? So <laughs> what can we do about that? And what does it look like when people redefine what you're what it is we're asking for there's, there's a lot to consider um, but uh, well it's interesting to, to try and flip it and look at how we can face it as a positive competition as opposed to uh, mitigating a problem hmm. right well thank you so much for being on the show with us and uh, thank you guys for listening thanks for having me it was my pleasure thank you again professor Murphy for being on our podcast and offering insight into the mixed methods approach to understanding affordable housing and homelessness here in Monterey. Here are a few key points to walk away with and think about as the day goes on. Policy isn't necessarily built to change culture, but used as a tool to influence the way people behave. I'll bet it might be the ultimate sociopath. They are used for positive social outcomes that benefit all engaging stakeholder communities. To change the idea of what homelessness is, is to change the attitude, perceptions, and ultimately culture of how we view and engage folks directly impacted by this phenomenon. What does better really mean? Do we have to have the issue become so exasperated to actually care and act? And what can we learn about flipping the public policy script to view affordable housing not simply as a one solution to a wicked problem? but as a positive competition in which communities uplift those looking for a place to call home. You can like and follow our page on Facebook by typing in Miss Radio. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor.fm. 
I look forward to the future contributions on this podcast as we finally progress to our last episodes with folks who are directly impacted by affordable housing and homelessness here in the Monterey County. This podcast is by no reflection of the university, but purely opinions brought to you by the Miss Radio Podcast Group. Thank you.